Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm very pleased to welcome the journalist Marie Leconte, whose new book is called Honourable Misfits, and it's a brief history of Britain's weirdest, unluckiest and most outrageous MPs. Marie, welcome. I want to start by saying, you know, with a name like that, you don't hail from these shores, and yet you write a great deal about British politics, British politicians and Westminster. How does a nice French Moroccan girl like you come to be so fascinated by British politics? <laughs> um, that is a very good question. It's actually, so I, I kind of wish there was a, a sort of simple and also actually, you know, ironically honourable answer uh, to give to that. But I think that very long story short, when so I came to this country to do a degree and didn't have much of an interest in politics because I was 17. And then when I was 18, um, at the end of my first year, I ended up going to some house party with some boy I was hoping to snog, who then uh, basically just went off for some other girl, uh, which happens. I didn't know how to get home because I was still quite new to London and I didn't know anyone else there. And I realised the telly was on um, and it turns out it was actually the night of the election, the 2010 election. So I kind of sat by the telly. You hadn't at the time clocked that it was the election. Uh, I hadn't. Again, I was 18. I did not care. Uh, <laughs> um, and yeah, and I basically just went to sit by the telly and, and, and just got really, really into it. And so I ended up basically becoming the political correspondent of the house party. Where I'd just be like, oh, you know, this new seed got announced. <laughs> and yeah, that was generally kind of like the start of some yeah weird and unexpected uh, so far lifelong passion. <laughs> Goodness. And and you, you left the university and obviously became, you know, moved on from political correspondent of the house party to being a journalist. Did you kind of, I get into it, you may have gone the route in that I went in of being a diarist first. Uh, no, actually, I did a bunch of stuff before that. So I got really lucky. So when I graduated, a friend of a friend was looking for someone to replace her for a bit by doing shifts on the Telegraph picture desk. Uh, so I was a picture editor for a bit. But yeah, I sort of did because I, I I did what I like to think of as a as a graduate scheme, except I just could not get into the actual graduate scheme. So instead, I just did a bunch of shifts. So like everywhere, different newspapers and websites doing different things. So I sort of said yes to everything. So I was even like a Bitcoin reporter actually for a bit, which was entertaining. Um, so yeah, I did that. I did some news desk stuff, some funny internet stuff, etc. But then, yeah, what really clicked was ending up at the Londoner's Diary at the Evening Standard and having a wonderful boss, uh, Joy Ladico, who saw very quickly that my main interest actually was not really parties and, you know, actors and so on, but it was just politics. And so she was like, actually, do you kind of just want to focus on Westminster and do that? And I did. And I really loved it. And uh, and yeah, so there you go. You got a lobby pass and here, here you are, I guess. Or maybe you weren't ever in the lobby. Or... Uh, no, I've actually never been in the lobby. But no, so I did that. And then I was politics and media correspondent at BuzzFeed for a year. And then I went freelance and I've been sort of, yeah, very happily freelance writing about politics for whoever will have me for the past uh, just over three years now. And so in and around Westminster, what you've now obviously started to look into the history and you know, you're surrounded by the extremely normal people who currently represent us. And what sent you back to the idea of doing the politics of the past and political history? I mean, did you have to read yourself in a lot? Um, well, I'm going to be completely honest with you. Like the, This book was not necessarily my idea. It was effectively the publishers, John Murray, who got in touch with my agent and who said, you know, we kind of had this idea. They didn't have, I think, the very specific idea for Honourable Misfits, but kind of like, we'd like to do a book about, you know, that's quite fun and snappy about sort of like quite 
odd, I guess, political history. And so we talked together as actually, you know, that is a thing that could interest me. And we talked together and then I eventually came up with a proposal for honourable missits. And yeah, so, so it's not, again, it's not something I think I would have thought of by myself, but I'm really thankful, obviously, they got in touch. Because then it was like, actually, you know, why not? Because the things I like about politics now... I think, you know, other things I like about political history as well. I, I, I fundamentally, you know, just quite like the human side, I guess, of politics. And, you know, and that, that's kind of been a constant. But, you know, humans have, have been members of parliament uh, since there's been a parliament. Did you surprise yourself in what you discovered? I mean, looking back, were politicians, I mean, we think of them as an odd bunch now. Did, were they odder in the past? And if so, why? <laughs> uh, that's a good question. I think, I'd say, I mean, the thing that shocked me, which I probably shouldn't have been shocked by, but because I feel like, you know, England, Britain kind of, you know, can get a bit smug about, you know, kind of oldest parliament, not quite in the world or whatever, but, you know, kind of its history and parliamentary history and democracy and etc. when actually, you know, not much about, I think, MPs up until about 300 years ago was democratic. Like, it was just generally some random posh men. who was like, you know, I kind of fancy being the commons for a bit because I've got nothing else on and then would just get given a seat or would just pay off their voters and then would kind of, you know, come on. So it, it was, I think, a lot of that for a very, very long time, which which I guess I sort of knew to an extent, but not not to that extent. So that, that was definitely a bit um, a bit of a surprise. Yeah, you do have a you do have a sort of almost running joke that goes, you know, paragraph two is always, you know, after, after going to Eton, yes, again, and Oxford, <laughs> yes, again. Uh, yeah, it turns out it's really it, it's really hard to <laughs> to write mini because obviously you know because they're all mini biographies anyway. So I do have to go through the kind of their upbringing and stuff. And and yeah, and after the sort of you know twentieth person who went to eat in the Oxford, so we're like, how do I write this in a way that's not extremely boring? That that, that was genuinely a challenge I had. <laughs> Is there a a sort of obvious because you've got this different perspective that you know you'll understand you know. Be, stand on on both sides of that bridge of mutual incomprehension that is French and British political culture. Are they drastically different? I mean, I, I the only thing there's the ENA, I guess, which you know all mm. all French politicians seem to go to. Is that the which has been abolished? Actually, has it been abolished? Yeah, yeah, Macron did that last year, I think. It's gone now forever. I know because my cousin failed the exam on the last ever year. Oh. Uh, so it really sucks for him. <laughs> Was that a, a similar thing or that idea of a sort of elite going into politics or has, has the French system been more democratic as you see it? Oh, that's actually, this is a very interesting question because I was talking about it with a friend not too long ago. I think the difference is that in France, there's absolutely an elite that will go to the same universities and do the same sort of like masters, etc. and who know each other. So again, it's mostly Lina and all the grandes écoles, etc. Well, I would argue, so the difference, I think, between Britain, the British elite, effectively, and the French elite, is that the French elite is just political, whereas I think the difference with Oxford and Cambridge and certain courses there is that everyone goes there. So, you know, the elite in like politics, in business, in the arts, in culture, in everything, that like, all of those people meet in those same places, whereas I think the elites are more scattered in France. I would say that's kind of like the, the main difference. And I'm not saying, you know, one is better than the other, etc., but... But yeah, but again, you know, Lina, you only do, if you want to get into politics, you, you don't have the equivalent of, oh, well, you know, you you can do PPE or something like that in, in a good college at Oxford, and then you can sort of work literally anywhere. Now, let's get on to some of your characters, because they are cherishable. The old one. <laughs> do you have particular sort of favourites? I mean, are there people who you, you go, yeah, oh, I like, really liked this one? Hmm, favourite? Oh, 
So yes and no. So obviously there's a whole section in the book about it's called the unfortunates about you know the kind of people who died in very stupid ways. And I did really really feel for some of them <laughs> to be honest writing the books. I think was it like Alfred Dobbs who was. You know, he's kind of this proper sort of like Northern Labour Party stalwart of, you know, had stood for councils and had been, you know, kind of that massive presence in the Labour Party at a local level, but kept trying to stand for the Labour Party in general elections and kept losing, kept losing, kept losing. Eventually he won and got elected as the MP for Smethwick. And then a day later, he got in a car accident and died. And that is generally, I regret to say, that kind of stayed with me for quite a few days afterwards. So, yeah, I think there's different dif- different kinds of favourites. So I think, yeah, so the, the Labour MP who died one day after being elected is definitely sort of, you know, the one I feel the most sorry for, I think. Then I think my favourite eccentric is probably John Bentick, who has this sort of like massive, massive estate that inherited, obviously, from his parents. And, and yet it was just like a fundamentally odd bloke. And so got, you know, decided that he didn't want to live above ground. He just wanted to live underground and so got these like you know massive network of tunnels built under the estate and including there's also you know like underground rooms so there was an underground ballroom I think in library etc so build this entire sort of like new world underground and would only ever come out at night where I think a woman like servant could hold a torch but only sort of like walk like quite a few paces in front of him and stuff and and, and it's one of those guys well like, as, as far as I can tell you know he treated his workers like who built all the tunnels and stuff like generally very well was a very good employer was kind to everyone but was just massively massively weird but none of them were allowed to talk to him is that the same guy that, that... Uh, it is yeah yeah no one could talk to him or even acknowledge that he existed and I think weirdly my favorite thing is that there were also mini railways in the in those tunnels, including one I think that was used to send up uh, roast chicken, like warm roast chicken, to his chambers. And yeah, and and yeah, that that strikes me as kind of people like that are kind of the essence of this book of kind of you know true eccentrics wouldn't hurt a, wouldn't hurt a fly, but just deeply deeply fundamentally odd. And I think and even at the time there were lots of rumours about why he was living the way he did. So I think there was stuff about him being like a pervert or being disfigured or having some sort of illness etc but as far as we know there's none of that he just really wanted to live by himself and completely underground you think you wouldn't have much use for a ballroom if you were determined not to meet or be acknowledged by any other member of the human race yes although i mean i quite like the word optimism of saying you know i I wonder obviously i can't get in his head of him probably thinking well you know I, I hate being overground, but maybe I don't hate people all the time. Maybe there will come a time when I want to socialise, and in that case, you know, I need to accommodate for that to happen underground. Like, yeah, I see it's weirdly optimistic, I think. Did there emerge... I, th- I mean, one of the clichés, at least, of 20th century and, I guess, 21st century politics was always that Labour's bad apples got in trouble with money and Tory bad apples got in trouble with sex. Is that something that obtained throughout... English British parliamentary history? Um, well, I guess, I mean, to be fair, there wasn't a Labour Party, I think, for most of the time period I wrote kind of the, the book about. But, or um, Whigs, let's ooh, say. Well, yes, yes. <laughs> no, I, I feel like sex scandals were less of a thing. So there's definitely sort of like very entertaining sex stories in the book, but none of them, I think, really proved to be the downfall of the MPs concerned. But, but again, and I wonder if it's like, you know, class thing as well in that, Probably, you know, like the, the vast majority of the of the people, of the men mostly mentioned in the book, you know, came from very, very posh backgrounds. And it was kind of assumed that you could sort of do whatever you wanted. You know, so obviously, you know, one, one of those things could be, you know, just sit in the Commons for a bit. I think the shortest standing MP, I can't remember which one it was now, but who got elected, so like paid everyone off, got elected, and then sat in the chamber for half an hour. Then was like, nah, changed my mind, actually, not for me and never went back. 
so again, I think, you know, weirdly, yeah, being in Parliament, but also doing weird sex stuff, we're all probably on that same sort of level of can just do a bit of everything and that's fine. So again, I think, yeah, they, it, it never really ended up becoming massive scandals, I think. You say the the opening sentences, you know, this is not a book about politics. And you argue in the book, you know, these people, you know, they're a selection of weirdos because, you know, in Kant's, you know, out of the bent and crooked timber of humanity, nothing straight was ever made. You know, they're, they are representative in that sense, as well as being representative. But do you think you could have written a book like this about, say, you know, history's weirdest plumbers or history's weirdest actors or whatever? I mean, is there something special about politics, do you think, that does attract people to, you know, does attract sort of coterie of slightly stranger people? Yes, but, um, hmm. So I was going to say yes with a slight caveat in that I think you have to be quite weird to want to stand for Parliament at the moment or to have wanted to stand for Parliament in the past 10 years. And I think you had to be weird to become an MP about, you know, let's say two, three centuries ago. I think there's a different flavours of weird. In that, again, you know, at the time, to be, yeah, to be clear, like it, it, A, it took a lot less effort to get elected to Parliament if you were from the right background. But B, you didn't really have to do that much work. Obviously, I mean, you, you could choose absolutely to kind of be a good, effective MP and the sort of MP, you know, we'd kind of see now doing stuff in the constituency, giving speeches in the chamber, being on select committees, etc. The vast majority of them did not do that. So I think that changes the equation slightly. So at the time, I think it was more about people who kind of wanted attention because also it wasn't the job wasn't paid for a very very long time so it was just people who wanted attention and to feel a bit yeah to feel a bit special and and clearly that's going to I think the combination of that and overwhelmingly you know any people with the right connections from the right background could become MPs mean that you did end up with just a, a lot of fundamentally weird people and again I think they were different from the ones today where it's like why would you you know who's been looking at the kind of you know Brexit war years and gone, you know, I want some of that, <laughs> you know, let, let me join the fray. And I think that's, again, yeah, a, a different flavour of eccentricity. Yeah, I mean, one of the complaints that's occasionally made about the low standards, of, as, as we tend to see it, you know, from our historical perspective, the sort of relatively low calibre of people we find at the top of politics is the problem is we've got professional politicians, they say, you know, We've got people who've never known anything outside politics. They haven't been in business. They haven't been in the world. They've, you know, they've, they've done PPE. They've done a job in PR and suddenly they're in the cabinet. This is a, <laughs> covers largely a period in which, you know, these politicians were sort of aggressively non-professional. Do you think they represent an improvement? I mean, would return to, to the amateur politician be as good a thing as some people seem to think? Oh, yeah, well, I think you know, certainly one of the things you know, thinking about while researching the book was that actually, you know, Jesus turns out, you know, the, the current crop of MPs we have, like, you know, we've never had it better, <laughs> it turns out, which is quite depressing. But, but you know, I think, you know, and that's kind of one of the things I was yeah, thinking about as well, the fact that, and probably at the time and now, but w- one of the complaints I think, you know, the public tends to have about MPs is that either saying, oh, well, you know, we, we want MPs who are real people, you know, who've had yeah, real jobs, and they act and sound like us, etc. And they're not just kind of, you know, bots in suits who just follow their leadership etc etc but then the second someone acts like a normal person they're like oh no god you know not like that um so so i think that is something certainly that mps today get caught in again you know the public doesn't seem to know what it wants from its mps but which yeah again until not that long ago that was not as much of a problem really because you could pretty much just you know buy off a seat really um and that was that yeah did did politicians i mean 
Nowadays, we're very concerned about politicians using the powers they get or the access they get or the, the clout in one way or another that they, that they have through being politicians for personal advantage. The sense that the crooks in this book aren't generally using politics for personal advantage. They just happen to be crooks who spend a certain amount of time in the House of Commons. Oh, yes, absolutely. A apart from, I think there's a few... Mostly, I think, Ineas Trebich Lincoln, who was the MP for Darlington for a year. Oh, he's I think remarkable. A notable, so, yeah, oh, yeah. And I, I think, actually, you know what? Like, this is probably my favourite entry in the book, largely because because it feels like one of those, you know, sort of, like, kids' books or something. Where it's like, well, surely, you know, it can't keep going, it can't keep going. So, obviously, for people listening, very long story short, this Hungarian guy who had to leave Hungary because he was a thief and he was, I think, about to get caught... Ends up in England, I think, yeah, so like was of Jewish descent, decides to stop that and become, I think, a Christian, becomes a missionary in Canada, I think. Ends up, you know, sort of like not converting anyone, just having a sort of like, you know, a, a, a nice jolly time. Comes back, befriends some sort of, you know, liberal benefactors, a very wealthy liberal man. Decides to stand for Parliament, despite not actually, I think, by that point being a British citizen. Wins the seat in Darlow for some reason, somehow. Then, yeah, then to his great shame, realises that it's not paid. <laughs> so I think there's another election later that year, or like just the year after, so decided to stand down. Anyway, and, and I'm not going to spoil the rest, but it's just, it, it does end up, you know, he's a, he ends up becoming like a monk uh, in China. He weirdly, yeah, shortly becomes the Japanese story for the Dalai Lama. He meets Hitler um, and tries to befriend him a bit. But anyway, so it's one of those stories that, yeah, keeps going, but... He's sort of everywhere, isn't he? I mean... He's one of these characters who, who just, you know, reinvents himself absolutely constantly. He does. And I think so weirdly what I find especially compelling about him as well is that I'd never heard of him because, you know, to be blunt, he never achieved anything. Um, and, and there's something, again, I, I think I'd quite like to watch a movie about him, really, or at least, you know, sort of like read some sort of book or anything, because there is something, I know that there's something, yeah, quite compelling and quite poignant about the fact that this guy who clearly had, you know, no moral compass whatsoever, but clearly had this incredible talent for, again, yeah, as you said, reinventing himself again and again and again and turning up basically anywhere in the world and saying, OK, well, you know, I'm going to do something now, but never quite being successful enough at any of these things. Yeah, it's just yeah, a, a very compelling character. There were slight shades of Robert Maxwell to him, I thought. I noticed Maxwell didn't make it into the book. Um, yeah, no, Maxwell didn't make it. So I decided, I mean, with my editor quite early on, to basically only include people who were long dead. So no, not, not even, you know, sort of like just dead, but had been dead for several decades. So I think that did remove a few people from that, Robert Maxwell uh, being one of them. So I don't know why I said Robert slightly, like in a French accent, but there you go. <laughs> Was that because, I mean, you you say somewhere in the book that you want to be able to giggle at people's unfortunate deaths and you think there's a certain amount of time it has to be in the past before it becomes funny yes oh yeah no absolutely so again you know what, what one of the well, you know, unfortunate deaths which i still can't really talk about without giggling is a guy who tripped and fell on a turnip and died um because literally i think you know like the wound got infected and that was that if it happened 400 years ago that is generally quite funny because it's that poor bloke you know <laughs> he fell on a turnip that is incredibly undignified had that happened 20 years ago just quite sad just quite sad so, yeah, no, so that was very much a choice, I think, both for legal reasons and also because of the sort of like nature of the book that, yeah, n no one even semi-recent. I think I can't remember exactly, but I think, yeah, the most recent death we have is probably sort of like the 50s, I so, think. No, John the... Stonehouse is in there, isn't he? Oh, damn it. Yes. Hang on. No, actually, tell you what, I actually remember what the rule ended up being, which is very not scientific. It was like it had to be, uh, I decided quite early on, people who died before I was born. 
Um, <laughs> so yeah, so John Stonehouse died in 1988. And uh, yeah, my parents had barely met by that point. So I was like, that's fine. That's just about fine, just under the line. So yeah, there you go. Good. Uh, well, that's a, that's a nice and arbitrary cutoff. <laughs> Well, yeah, I, I did try to think of, you know, like something else. And then it was like, actually, I, I, I can't really agree on a line or there, there's no reasoning I can find to just set on a date. So then I was like, you know, why not my date of birth? And why not? No, since we're on the subject of crooks, there is the most wonderful scam in this from a politician who was, I to try and find him, James Morrison, I think is the fellow. Can you tell us about James Morrison's 19th century character, early to mid 19th century MP, but Obviously, just an ingenious fraudster. Oh, yeah, but, but then, you know, it, it is the thing, isn't it? Like, was he a fraudster? Was it just good business? But no, so James Morrison was born, um, actually, for once as well, compared to many of the other MPs in the book, had, you know, sort of like fairly humble beginnings, but clearly, yeah, sort of had a, had a gift for business, ended up becoming a merchant. And it's it, it's a bit of a weird one, because, you know, you, you can never know for certain that especially, you know, outlandish stories were actually true. But, um, but you know, he became sort of like, you know, massively, massively su- successful as a merchant and incredibly wealthy. But yeah, but that happens, for example, uh, once the health of Caroline of Brunswick, uh, the Queen Consort, was kind of deteriorating. He saw that happen and he thought, ha, and so bought up all the black crep in the country. Um, so when she did die not too long afterwards, everyone had to come to him to basically buy the, the the black crepe for their mourning outfits, which he could, you know, put the prices up massively and then uh, make a pretty penny. But then the best one, I think, was when he was importing leather gloves from France and this massive shipment arrived in Southampton. And obviously he was asked to pay for the taxes uh, and he refused and told the customs officers, you know, just keep the cargo. That's fine. I don't care. So the cargo eventually is put up for auction. But then, you know, the trick is no one wanted to buy it because it was only left-handed gloves. And basically what he'd done is, that, you know, so obviously he bought that for no money for a fraction of the cost of, you know, what he would have paid. And he'd actually sent all the right-handed gloves to Great Yarmouth, where he did exactly the same thing. And so just ended up getting his gloves for effectively, again, a fraction of the money he would have had to pay. So, um, and, and yeah, you know, long story short, he did become, in the end, the richest commoner of his time. Uh, so clearly all of that worked. So again, you know, was he a crook or was he just very successful? Well, <laughs> certainly <laughs> on the edge there. Speaking of crooks, I don't... Yes, again, I don't want to be one of those people who grouses about emissions, but surely Horatio Bottomley would have been a sitter for this book. That is actually a very good question, and I'm going to be entirely honest with you and say that I can't remember why I didn't put him in. <laughs> uh, it's just it's just that lovely story. I don't know, you know, he, he was visited in prison after being banged up for the latest of his frauds and by a former cabinet colleague or, or you know, MP colleague, Commons colleague, who found him stitching mailbags and said, ah, oh, Bottomley, sewing. And he said, no, reaping. <laughs> <laughs> That's very good. You know, I can't, I, I probably should have made a list because there's actually a few people now I sort of look back at again and gone, you know, I remember there was a reason why, you know, that there was a good reason why I didn't include you, but I can't remember why. Well, that goes, um, so, yeah, paperback there you go. opportunities mm. anyway, revised, updated and expanded. You can do that. Exactly, exactly. Do you think that people's, I mean, desire to become MPs has changed over the years. I mean, there's a sense with some of these earlier ones that, as you say, you know, you're a very wealthy toff. It's kind of what you're going to do for a bit. You know, you have a seat because that's what, you know, it's the seat your family is always represented or whatever. I mean, do you, do you think people enter politics for different reasons now? I mean, they always say, you know, because I want to change the world. But is it a will to power? Is it a desire for attention? Is it, you know, show business for ugly people, as it's sometimes said? What? Mm. Oh, I don't, I mean, 
So I think the thing, I guess, that struck me when I probably came into Westminster and started reporting on politics and meeting MPs quite often is that actually I would say that the vast majority of them are fundamentally quite good people. They're not, not incredible people, you know, each and every one of them, but just broadly good. And I think, the, yeah, again, the vast majority of MPs broadly got into it for the right reasons of obviously, you know, be that most obviously Conservatives or Labour were probably in the party for a very long time and thought, you know, I, I really care about X or Y or Z, so be that, you know, a constituency or an issue or an ideology, etc. And then want to, yeah, want to go in and sort of, you know, help. And obviously, you know, which is a very cliche thing to say, but there is a minority who are just dreadful people and who generally do just want the power and that's that. Um, and, and they kind of spoil it for everyone else, really. But, but no, I think the vast majority do go into it for broadly honourable reasons. Do you think there's too much cynicism about politics? I mean... I remember somebody saying to me that when John Major was getting in the late nineties, you know, getting an absolute bucket from sorry, early nineties, getting an absolute bucket from everybody, and everyone was like, "He's awful." So he said, "If everyone can meet him, they would see what an extraordinarily decent man he is." Mm. Do you think if we knew our politicians better, or if the media helped us to know them better, we'd actually think better of them? Oh yeah, absolutely, and no, no, no question at all. And I think, but actually, but then that that becomes this weird thing as well, doesn't it? Of I mean, at least I found that. I don't know if other other political journalists have, but yeah, I, I feel like I've got so much more compassion for MPs. You know, now I know them and work around them than I did um, as a reader. You know, that, that that can become a problem, I think, quite quickly when readers, like if readers mistrust MPs, for example, which I think quite a lot of them do. Like, there's lots of polling on the topic. If they get the feeling that actually political journalists end up nearly sounding like they're on the side of the MPs and not on the side of the readers due to actually just quite liking the MPs as people, I think we just end up being mistrusted as well. And yes, so I'm not entirely sure how that, that's a question I find really interesting and I'm not really sure how you do it. But yet perhaps sort of like less adversarial sort of, you know, journalism could be good. But equally, you know, it is the role of news, like the role of news is fundamentally to, you know, expose wrongdoings. And, and obviously I'm not arguing against that at all. So, yes, yeah, so no, I, I agree. I think there's busy a slight conundrum at the middle of this and I'm not really sure how you resolve it. So you think there's a sort of, in a way, a perverse incentive that journalists are kind of required to be more hostile to politicians than they might be naturally because people hate politicians. They'll think journalists are on their side if they give them a fair shake. I mean, sort of, yeah, basically. But then, hmm. Now, I think there's that. But then, yeah, to be honest, I would also like to make clear that I've only been in Westminster you know, for, for not that very long uh, in the grand scheme of things. So I'm sure that, again, because of that insistent minority of MPs who are just, you know, terrible people, the, some of the cynicism, especially from people who've been in the lobby for, you know, a very long time, etc., if that cynicism is not just, and you know, entirely true and real. And is just that is generally how they feel. And they're just, you know, tired of just terrible people running the country. So, yeah. Do you think yeah. it's the terrible ones who rise to the top? Not always, but too often. Why is that? Oh, uh, well, uh, can I recommend my first book? Haven't you heard <laughs> on that? Because that that's kind of something I get into quite a lot. But no, more seriously, I think it's because is because a lot of British politics is based on the informal. It's based on uh, what you know, who you know, uh, what you do with that information and those contacts um, and kind of how you play your cards. And as a result, I think it is quite easy for someone um, to, you know, to rise to the top, even though they don't really deserve it because they're not that good an MP. Like, you know, it, you just have to effectively be someone who is just quite like quite a good people person, weirdly. Um, to, I think, rise to the ranks. Or it's, isn't it? it's about luck as well. And I think journalism, in some respects, is quite similar. I think a lot of it is just sheer luck and being in the right place at the right time. Yeah, do you, 
I mean, to return to the the early theme because we've because <laughs> we've got you. How different are the political? I mean, you said that the political elite in France is, if you like, it's not as wired into the elites in other areas of life, but the, just narrowly the political culture itself. I mean, do you think there's a problem in terms of the, over the the last, you know, particularly the last half a decade or so where we've been negotiating Brexit, we've been talking about all that with a sort of incompatibility or mutual incomprehension between political cultures on the continent and here? I mean, do you think we don't understand each other? Hmm. Yes. Well, I'm, what, what I will say is that I know considerably more about British politics than French politics, which I know is slightly odd, but also, you know, I just live here and I've been living here for a very long time. So, and I do, I, I think that I guess that other political cultures strike me as, again, not to bang my own drum, but like, you know, as, as less informal and as, you know, it's kind of, you know, whatever, like the government does their job and then you've got the MPs, then you've got the journalists on the side, you can kind of cover everything, etc. Like everyone has got a lot more of a set thing, whereas I feel like, you know, there's an ecosystem in Britain that strikes me as more incestuous. Um and yeah, and so I wonder, because I remember, yeah, one of the things that uh, drove me mad, and I think lots of other people as well during the Brexit negotiations, was this kind of British insistence that everything can be fudged, like everything can and will be fudged. So, you know, the EU would say something and be like, well, you know, you say that, but how about, you know, this slightly different things that sounds broadly the same. And then the EU was like, no, obviously not. We have had to talk to so many people to get this in writing. This is our position and this is it. So I think that there is, again, yeah, a slight thing in British politics, you know, we're more informal. We can fudge on things. We can, you know, sort of like gentlemen's agreements, etc. And yeah, and certainly during the Brexit negotiations, that was a problem. Well, Marie de Conte, thank you very much indeed for your time. Oh, thanks for having me. listening to the spectators books podcast i very much hope you enjoyed it and if you did please do consider rating or reviewing us on the itunes store we'd love to hear from you